From Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a safety prerogative, this is the source of information on psychological injury prevention and health promotion. Hi, and welcome to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. My name is Jason Van Shee, and I'm one of the hosts of the show. The aim of the podcast is to rapidly increase the knowledge and application of psychological health and safety in workplaces worldwide. To help with this, we have regular guests from around the world who are leading the way in this important area. But before I introduce our guest and topic for today, allow me to introduce my co-host, Joelle Mitchell. How are you today, Joelle? I, um, I haven't told you about this. I had an odd experience over the weekend, um, what with everything else that happened over the weekend, this, this one. Um, yeah, it was Rodin's party on the weekend. Yeah, yeah. And that and wasn't the odd experience? No, no, that was a, well, if you're used to children's parties, it wasn't an odd, odd yeah. experience. But um, no, so this was, um, I was ordering some, um, some fast food at a, at a fast food restaurant using a, um, a touchscreen ordering option. Um, and I had my headphones on, I was listening to some music while I was doing it and just, I suddenly became aware of this looming shape in my periphery and I sort of turned and there was this dude, never, I swear I've never seen this person before in my life. And he was quite a tall guy, fully like in my personal space, staring into my face really, really intently. And I got just like so startled. I had bags in my hands and stuff. And I just sort of looked at him for like, I don't know how long it was. And I'm just like going through my head, what on earth is happening here? And my headphones are still on. And he's just staring at me. And eventually I said, go away. <laughs> and he kind of just nodded and walked off. Okay. It was just the strangest thing. Okay, so it wasn't like one of those late night Macca's runs after was, you've had a few drinks no, and other was, people have as well. No, this was um it was maybe five o'clock okay. in the afternoon. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know, like maybe he thought he knew me mm-hmm. or it was just super creepy. Like those are the only two explanations I can come up with. <laughs> Does sound super creepy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's like, what does this 12-year-old girl like need? Like <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Sorry for the uh, the listeners who haven't seen Joel before. She does look like a 12-year-old girl. Um, yes. Or or a 12-year-old boy, depending on who you ask. Yeah, we've already worked out that you're shorter than a 12-year-old boy. I'm shorter than your 12-year-old boy, but you're <laughs> tall. So I don't think that that's an accurate um sample size. Yeah, probably not. We um, I'm, I'm shorter than one 12-year-old boy. <laughs> At least one. At least one. Okay. Well, very weird. Hopefully that doesn't happen again anytime soon. Indeed. Indeed. I'm um I'm pleased that I was quite strangely assertive in my response and didn't instead <laughs> take my headphones off and politely ask, could I help him with something? Yeah, um, you have a lot yeah. of practice over here at People Diagnostics being assertive. Well, you know, being rude to people that I know is different to being rude to strangers, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But lots of practice here. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Look, um, speaking about being rude to strangers, um, we are being rude to the guest who we've got on today. So you should probably introduce her. Let's do that. Yeah. So uh, she has a PhD in applied psychology and is a chartered psychologist in the UK. She has a global portfolio of extensive experience in supporting individuals and teams towards effective psychosocial risk management with a focus on highly specialized and challenging roles, including social media content moderation, social work, humanitarian aid, emergency services, broadcast media, journalism in hostile environments, and the military. 
She's a guest lecturer at the University of Manchester in Hull and the founder of RTO Consulting. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Jackie Wilmhurst. Thank you very much indeed. Great to be here. Great to have you. I must say that is probably one of the longest introductions I've done for a guest. <laughs> Quite a portfolio. A few things in. <laughs> <laughs> yes, really stoked to have you on and uh, really stoked to be talking about um, a topic that we have not yet uh, touched on with someone who's so experienced in the area. So um, to get us to understand about that, Jackie, can you tell us about your professional career? Yeah, I'll try going for the nutshell version. <laughs> so I did study psychology at undergraduate level. Um, probably not uncommon that I had no clue where I was going with it. I just found it really, really interesting. Um, I had initially started doing uh, international development because I knew I wanted to do something that felt very useful. And um, my idea of what was useful in the world was a lot more limited then. Um, but I got so interested in the psychology modules, I switched. Um, so I got my psychology degree and then I had been in the reserve military during my time at university. A little bit of a long story why, which I won't get into here. Um, but having said that there's absolutely no chance whatsoever I will join the military full time. I left university, did a whole bunch of different things, including um, working with people with quite profound um, mental illnesses in residential care. Um, I did quite a lot of bar work and I decided, you know, actually, I'm going to give this a go. So I did spend uh, in the end, including my year at the military academy, six years as an army officer, which gave me a good flavour for what we would later call hostile environments, high risk environments, um, working in a large organisation, although not always comparable. Um, and when I left, that was actually back in 2003, I again was having a re-evaluation as you do, did a whole bunch of things. And uh, my story into being, becoming a psychologist, again, it's a lot to do with um, chance encounters, strange things, doors closing, not knowing which ones would open. Um, but the long and short of it is I ended up doing a master's in research methods and then a doctorate that was actually around risk management and resilience. Um, meaning that, yes, it's about individual psychology, so that the, specifically the psychology, I should say, of risk management and resilience in a particular context or set of contexts, very much around stakeholders, communication, agency, decision making, um, did touch on understanding trauma, understanding the, the, what happens to people when they have been in a situation, but very much the whole process, the context at the time was actually natural hazards and climate change, um, very topical given the IPCC. Um, after my six years in academic, I discovered, of course, I am definitely a doer rather than a writer. Um, and I decided I was going to take all of that and bring it back into a more practice-based setting, really. And the rest from there was me finding my way with, armed with this applied research background and saying, I think this could really be helpful in other contexts. And the, the context I moved into, you'll see with the military, the, the, the research career in that particular area, um, I found my way back into workplaces. I should just say that in the military, I primarily was learning and development and leadership development. So I was used to doing a lot of teaching and pulling together of learning materials, but also policy and so on. So I decided that it would be brilliant to pull together the different strands. And that, that took me into well-being. And the reason I guess I have always had this um, slant towards health and safety is that in my mind, it just made logical sense that we would want to um, keep people safe at work in all ways rather than only physical harm uh, injuries. And it puzzled me back then, this was around 2010, why it was that we were teaching people to spot the signs of trauma or spot the signs of stress once they'd occurred. And we were having, there's a whole global industry and in how to try to prevent harm. 
So that yeah. that was kind of where I came into it. And then there's a whole load more around those industries I've gone into since. Okay. So um, for the past couple of years, you've been working with social media companies. Um, can you tell us sort of broadly about what the work, the work that you were doing um, in that industry? Yes. Um, that really came off the back of having been at the BBC for a couple of years. Uh, which in turn had come off the back of doing uh, running training courses around hostile environments where the psychology was increasingly coming in. So um, a couple of social media companies came to me and said, we really, really want to do better. And the focus has been on content moderation to a large degree, but actually the roles have been the full, um, you know, these huge complex global organizations and wanting to take better care of people um, full stop really. I'll pause there though. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's, it's an area that we haven't explored previously. Um, but I guess, you know, so many people spend their lives on social media these days, whether it's, you know, um, in their private lives on things like Facebook and TikTok and Twitter, or whether it's in their professional lives, like Joel, I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn, probably too much time on LinkedIn. Um, but there's, there's a lot of sharing and there's obviously a lot of content that goes on in there. And obviously um, particular uh, harms or, you know, uh, potential for that vicarious trauma, which we have spoken about previously on the podcast, where people are being exposed to traumatic images and maybe not even having any warning uh, about those, uh, that content that they're having to, to view. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just briefly to hop back to the BBC, that's where it came into sharp focus for me, where initially I was a freelance consultant training. This is more to do with my military background, actually, but training journalists who have to go not just to conflict zones, but it could be aftermath of natural disasters. But they were going into very physically dangerous environments. And the understanding was through bitter experience that trying to stay safe was one thing, but coming home and recognizing the psychological harm of some of that work um, was really taking its toll. And I had a strong focus on that. What emerged during my time there, of course, were the journalists sitting in London who in many, you know, in, in many views are very safe um, physically. They can walk out into central London, get on the tube and go home. Arguably there are other hazards there, but um, they would be channeling the called user generated content. And of course, actually goes hand in hand with social media because the number of people armed with smartphones with an instant video and, and photograph button can be anywhere and everywhere in every type of scenario. And just sending that in straight to the BBC saying, you know, here I am and this is what I've just seen. It could be terrorist attacks mm. um, or just human hardship all over the world. So these journalists role was to sit and basically trawl through all of the footage, select what would be able to show to viewers, give the kind of journalistic take on why it was helpful. So different in some ways, very similar in others, but with the exposure was beginning to really take its toll on these people. So I spent a good chunk of time doing both a research project and a whole load of strategy development around looking after those people better. Um, so therefore, fast forward to the social media companies again, it was looking at saying, we do need to understand more that of the effect that this, this stuff can have. However, we need to set it in the context that um, anyone at work is exposed to a whole bunch of different hazards that are very personal, how they will affect people. So, um, and actually, interestingly, yes, graphic imagery and videos are huge, but sometimes what can get missed is things like hate speech, um, child grooming, uh, all sorts of text-based that on the face of it, you might think it's just words, how could that be harmful? But of course, when people are living in that world, and, and we all know as psychopaths, particularly as psychologists, that. Um, but I think everybody knows that our imagination can be sometimes more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? 
more graphic or, or mm. more alive than actually seeing images and seeing videos. So that that is something that happens as well with people in other helping professions that absorbing that, as you say, vicarious secondhand trauma in different forms. What mustn't get missed out, of course, is that we all, um, I talk about working in high risk with high risk professions. And I think arguably these days, working can be high risk, <laughs> even without the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, we live in incredibly high demand, fast paced environments. So I think that line, but, but what we're talking here is when we know there's the capacity beyond the stress factors that are very well researched, that there are hazards that we know. It's, it's more about the type of injury that can occur. But what we mustn't forget is that when someone's exposed to those types of um, that type of content, they're also exposed to all the other aspects of workplace of the, of the pressures and strains and the sometimes poor working relationships. Um, yeah, um, interesting, obviously, that you've gone from news media into social media, um, both forms of media. Um, would you say the psychosocial risk profiles are similar for those two groups or are there differences be between the two that you've noticed? There are both. I mean, there's overlap and where yeah. there is that that part of it is um, when it comes to a human, a human mind being exposed to imagery, videos, text in, that, that you know, relates to suffering to that degree of humans and of animals, actually. Um, then for sure, the what's known applies that says this is how this stuff can affect you and what can we do both the stages are very much what can the organizations do to limit exposure in the first place that's classic risk management how do we give people what would be known as before the pandemic this term wasn't quite so widely known but i've always referred to psychological ppe how do we help people have to have their own meaningful equipment you know protective equipment for their mind which isn't as there's a lot less of that that can be done for people um because when we look at physical health and safety, we know that slips and trips. And let, I give the example of um, chemi chemicals. Um, probably a chemical would burn my skin and your skin around the same way mm. um, if we spilled it on us. Whereas if you and I were to watch or read some of this material, we could have incredibly different responses. So there's a big overlap in, in, in just the human toll of this kind of exposure. What tends to be the biggest difference is the context in which people work. And that can be anything from the demographics of um, the professional background journalists, for example, tend to be um, quite experienced already when they go into working in user-generated content. They have a broad portfolio of other journalistic experience. They have more choice about careers. Um, content moderators are often earlier career, not always. Mm -hmm. um, and also the way the work's designed is quite different. Um, and so that has a whole set. And that's why it has to be done in a very integrated way. It has to be that, that, that hence the health and safety approach is so ideal because it just says, how do we understand all of the hazards coming at our people and make them into a meaningful risk management plan rather than worrying about how do we treat stress? How do we treat trauma? You know, they, they can be quite compartmentalized otherwise and indeed have been, I think, in a lot of the places I've gone into. Yeah, it's... Um... God, there's so many interesting things that you've just said in it right now. The uh, the power of the written word and someone's imagination um, causing mm -hmm. more trauma potentially than actually watching a video or uh, seeing an, a disturbing image. Uh, I mean, that resonates with me. I remember um, you know being an avid reader, particularly when I was younger. Um, and yeah, you, when you and Joel, I know you like reading um, fiction these days as well. And you know, you, you get these really strong mental images so much so that when you watch a movie based on a book, you're like, oh, that's nowhere near how like how it should look. American Psycho comes to mind actually yeah. as as an example of a book just being far more graphic and disturbing than a movie 
ever could be, despite Christian Bale doing a fantastic job of his yeah. role. In that. Yeah, he, he could do a lot of sit-ups. So. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, um, yeah, so that that's that's really interesting. And then something that has come up before is, um, you know, when talking to people who've worked in military um, psychology or working uh, in emergency services, there's this idea that there are traumatic uh, ex- like stress exposures um, that people are going to experience while working in certain roles. And obviously content moderation, um, we can think about what are the psychosocial hazards associated with that. But often it's the hazards that you um, are run of the mill that are kind of present in every organisation that tend to take the largest toll because they're kind of unexpected. So it's things like just the workload or just the lack of control or autonomy that people have in the role, lack of role clarity. Um, so it's it's really interesting that we have this perception, our content moderators, yeah, we can definitely see um, the, the this big psychosocial hazard there in terms of the risk of vicarious trauma. Um, but there's all these other hazards that are part of the role as well. And, and that, that's really interesting what you say about the difference between the news media versus the uh, social media. Um, you have journalists who are obviously highly, highly experienced or, you know, have some qualifications behind them. They may be a bit older and more experienced in life as well. And then you have these content moderators who often, as you say, not always, but often a younger career and maybe it's an entry-level role for them. Um, so that part that that plays in in how they moderate the exposure to the psychosocial hazard at an individual level as well. Yeah, and I've got a couple of things to respond to in that. So um, the imagination one's huge. Uh, the one that comes to mind the most, actually, it's also social work. Um, I did some work towards the early stages of the pandemic, the first lockdown with social workers, and it's a good example of the um, hazards really beginning to overlap where... I was working with some social workers working from home and doing an awful lot of their casework by telephone, uh, email, still attending homes when required, but just a lot of case history and so on. And noticing that if they were on a telephone call absorbing information about a case, therefore it's just words, but they are conjuring up the picture, which could be incredibly harrowing. Um, and one of the things I was teaching them is this separation that everybody needs anyway, but really more so that one story is the woman had been looking at her own um, fireplace in her living room and the picture, absorbing a case history, getting on with her day, thinking no more about that particular part of the day. Um, the case, yes, finishes work for the day, finally breathes out and thinks it's my time now, goes, gets a glass of wine or a cup of tea, sits on her sofa, sees the same fireplace, the same picture and the entire case history comes back. Mm. and recognizing how powerful that could be when you don't have the separation and that has when I then moved back into the world of social media content moderation that was sharply in my mind that a lot of moderators because they're globally hired Mm. can be in multiple resident households and the only place they can content moderate from home is on their bed with a laptop on their knee Mm. Um, and recognizing that um, getting that extra separation and so that was an example of these different hazards clashing Um, And then in terms of the risk management as well, is this is why I work with organizations. One of the key things about health and safety legislation, which I appreciate varies, but certainly in the global standards is any risks that are foreseeable are the ones that need to be managed. And one thing that struck me when I got into this, back into the kind of workplace world of of bringing the psychology was seeing that there was all the stress management standards, which are brilliant. You know, you just listed some of them. There's the factors that can really get to us, but trauma kept being put somewhere else. 
And when I looked into it more and I'd got the whole handbooks on workplace trauma, generally it was geared towards these unforeseeable events, like a huge terror, like the Manchester Arena bombing and somebody being nearby and saying, well, look, the best thing we can do is treat people for the injuries because they've been through a traumatic event. And only really the, the high risk professions, military, it was still looking at PTSD awareness. How do people spot that they've been injured? Not how do we actually mitigate those risks? So I try to work with organizations to look and say, what can the business do at source? How can we equip people with the, the PPE? And how can we make sure that when they need the extra help, they're signposted? But what's required in that, and it is, it is a bit more work, it's unavoidably so, is that the individuals need to be far more involved in their own risk management plan. Yep. Because as you say, some of the emphasis with content moderation for all the right reasons is we're really worried about the content they moderate please can we go there and i work with these moderators and exactly as you've said sometimes they'd come back and they'd say hey look the content takes its toll how could it not but i'm honestly far more worried about my team leader right now or i'm worried about the targets i have to meet or i'm worried about my setup at home so that's why being able to allow somebody to map their own sort of risk management strategy as far as is possible is so incredibly important and I do think that goes for other psychosocial risks because we've all got our histories and our work yeah. you know our worlds outside of work but that also I guess shows the um uh the lack of insight perhaps that desktop research can give you if you're purely relying on you know an overview of the industry or what you think a role um means in terms of the psych hazards that are present there's some that you yeah. can overlook and and you really can't just skip the whole consultation phase with employees you really need to understand from their own perspective what are the things that cause them the greatest angst or stresses or you know keeps them up at night absolutely and also finding out you know how does that how is hr involved how is the health and safety department involved? are they talking to each other where's leadership coming from are middle managers being supported rather than kind of dumped on with more things to worry about and of course managers need to take care of their teams but i sometimes find middle managers get squashed in the middle of um, mm. the needs in either direction I've been one myself so I completely I, I've had that lived experience and I get that so yes it, I mean it, it's complicated it just doesn't it doesn't mean um, it can't be done and that's why we're here but uh, I think with social media that's one of the things is that I for the industry of course the pressures the, keeping the platform safe for the users you've said you're users of multiple different platforms and you want to trust that when you go on those platforms or and probably often more importantly children go on their platforms that everything is being done to keep those children and just the users in general safe and actually i've been so heartened in these companies that yes it's good business yes it's good for the company reputation but the level of care for the users is enormous where, where the balance has to be redressed is that the those who take off this it's called harmful content so if it's harmful to the users it can't suddenly not be harmful to the employees mm. so we know it's harmful well the key in risk management is it's potentially harmful depending yeah and the pressure for companies to make sure the platform is safe for the users does therefore translate onto immense pressure inside the companies to have enough people with the right skills to be able to work at pace while making sure they're okay. Um, and so that's, that is a very delicate balance to achieve. And it's, I think everybody knows what's out in the public space that that balance isn't always achieved quite what, you know, quite as it could be. Um, but I do know the industry has a huge focus on it. Yeah. This, this is a really interesting point that we've just arrived at because we were speaking with Jan yeah, yes. um, and she was making, you know, very clear connections between um, patient safety. Yeah, patient safety and the, you know, patient safety is really strongly linked with the psychological health of the caregivers. 
And if you're looking after the psychological health of the caregivers, then you're going to get improved patient safety outcomes. And that's not necessarily the case for social media, um, where if you, you've got content moderators and you're potentially just piling all of this work onto them to protect the users, but that, it ha- yeah, I guess that driver for protecting users isn't there in the same way to protect the content moderators in the way that it is potentially for, um, for caregivers. Yeah, I don't think I articulated that very well. <laughs> no, I does, absolutely. I completely yeah. get where you're coming from. And I would say it, because it, I do work with the healthcare sector and, and also emergency services. And I think in different ways, at different paces, coming from different angles, I think actually everyone is really pushing on this now. I think a lot of the time when I st- start to work with a, an industry or a company, they don't always know what they don't know. Uh, they've, it's, and the other thing I find very, I'll come back to your point, but just a quick aside is that where, I work a lot with global organizations and where a a global corporation is headquartered in terms of country has a huge influence. You'll know this from your work on how well-being at the broadest level and particularly health and safety is is managed. But all those aspects of how we look after employees, the people side, um, those cultures in terms of, um, for example, when I've worked with US led companies versus UK led companies and then more recently Chinese led companies is everyone. You've still got global. employees at at every level level up to senior but how it's managed is very different but the caregiver one um yeah it it, it is interesting because of course moderators are not seen in that respect as caregivers they're not having direct content with those users but there is still that they are performing a duty that is protecting others and that's where I, I look at that and think all the different industries I work with are doing that in some form or another even if they're not caring with they're not hearing it, but that can have its own hazard that the, the users being unavailable to them doesn't always give them that satisfaction, which we know is a buffer mm-hmm. for some of the psychological harm that can be caused to say, I have actually seen. So some of the work I've done is to say, how do, how do individual moderators start to get a bit of feedback about their own impact as opposed to just the company? And you're doing a brilliant job keeping the platform safe. So how is there that feedback coming in? user-generated content journalists would find similar where they do all of this work forward on whatever the material they thought would make a really good background to the 10 o'clock news and it didn't get used and they would be finding that those other factors would be playing into how badly they would respond or or not Um, and we know that the literature supports that that we know that a huge buffer against some of these things is um, meaning purpose agency even um, I'm thinking self-determination theory here as well that idea of competence you know the actions I've I've made have actually made a difference, and if you don't see the agency, meaningful difference, yeah. yeah, you know, so that bit, um, you'd think these social media platforms that are so good at getting people addicted to them would actually understand how to gamify or give people some sense of purpose or fulfilment in their role. They do. I think it, it is. It's those external pressures to keep the platform safe, and all of the stuff we know again, all in the public sphere around data protection issues around being able to verify the identity of the age of users while not in any way having data that everybody should have and all of these juggling and, and the pace, you know, a, a company again, not like TikTok, I, I can I can name the companies I've been at, I obviously won't discuss things that uh, would be uh, unfair to discuss, but I think it's not a secret that TikTok's been in hyper growth and that brings a huge number of hazards of its own as well, um, whereby trying to keep tabs on the sheer number of people coming in because 
uh, TikTok was growing anyway as it globalized when the pandemic um, hit, how many more users went on to TikTok? So to you know recruit, train, look after enough employees to keep that platform safe with all those external pressures creates a huge number of internal ones. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been a difficult time, and um, we know that that set, that industry has been in the the media quite a lot. The one other thing, Joel, to pick up on with the what you said there about care workers is that I agree with you in terms of I agree with you, <laughs> and there's an and to that which is. Um, I'm often interested in the psychology of the people who choose, we choose our professions and the pressures undoubtedly come from external places. Of course they do, as do many internal pressures around, I identify as a helper, I identify as a carer, I identify as someone who's values-based and who wants to make the world a better place rather than some, you know, we, we have our different drivers. And I know I've watched that that can sometimes be a really interesting psychological hazard of its own that says, have you checked where the pressure is coming from right now? Is it definitely out of your control? Is it definitely from your manager, your business? Or is it actually something in you that says, I have to do better. I have to care more. I have to do more. I was so, actually going to ask that question as you're having that discussion around this idea of vocation or um, mm -hmm. you know, my calling. My calling is to be a healthcare provider, um, uh, be a nurse, be a doctor, versus a content moderator who maybe sees this as an entry-level role into a startup, you know, uh, or getting into a technology company? I see both. Uh, yes, it is an entry-level. Yes, there are people coming in, but to do that job day by day, because is it, you know, the number of people who come in versus how long, what the tenure is. Um, I've trained a lot of content moderators around psychological um, health and safety and sort of PPE and all the work that I do. And Actually, I'd say the, that that vocation is what keeps people in um, because that that level of care and that feeling of I really do want and need to make a difference. But you're, you're right, it is a mix. And actually, in an exa another example would be in Europe, um, for example, that when there are people moving around, um, actually sometimes fleeing really difficult situations in their home country, sometimes an entry into a country where they only speak their own language so far, some of these companies provide really good um, employment opportunities for people who are not uh, a native speaker of, let's say in Germany, not, not a German speaker yet. And I've seen them come in and do night classes. They might've been surgeons, they might have been university lecturers, they might've been anything, but they can get in, learn the language, um, have a package that looks after them in terms of salary benefits and so on, and then be able to move on. So to be honest, trying to sort of look at a dem demographic of content moderators is really difficult globally mm. because um, it's incredibly diverse. Yeah, that's so interesting. This is, this is really, it's... <laughs> how, think, we, how we not had you on before, Jackie? I, well, we've been trying. <laughs> we've been trying for, I think, um, Tim, actually, Tim Marsh suggested yeah, it and okay. we've been working at it ever since, haven't we, Jackie? <laughs> yeah, I've known Tim a few years, actually. So, yeah. yeah, he mentioned it a while back. So apologies, it took me a while to be that's sorted out. Yeah, yeah, no, we're we're just glad to have you. This is a really um a really fascinating topic and we could probably talk about it all night, but um <laughs> our listeners will, will want to switch off at some point, I assume. Um so I guess, you know, when we're when we're talking about people like content moderators, um, whether it's social media or or news media, um, you know, that I guess the the vicarious trauma, um the hazards that they expose to, um it is literally sort of the point of the job. So the elimination approach um, can't really work in that situation. So can you give us some examples of, of strategies that organisations can actually use to help reduce the risk of people developing vicarious trauma in those roles? 
Yes. I'm thinking it's very different in different industries and then within industries, very different in different companies. So uh, that's not, that's not me sidestepping the question, but I'm thinking some examples, um, you know, in, in news, in news media, for example, um, those journalists job is to be the first port of call for that material. That That is what they're there for. And as you say, on the one hand, can't be eliminated, but on the other hand, it is foreseeable. Um, so that's a lot of the work I did at the BBC today. We can't just say, Oh, let's really, really, really hope they don't get traumatized, but we will have, you know, doctors on standby. My analogy for that would be going to a construction site and sort of asking, you've got all these workers up 10 stories, how do you keep them safe? And saying, well, we offer free um, yoga classes, we give talks on sleep and nutrition, um, we, we give them all these opportunities to boost their well-being, and then we really keep our fingers crossed they won't slip and fall off. But if they do, we have doctors on standby. We'll always refer them to We've a doctor. got a great trauma surgeon right here. <laughs> yes. And so a lot of companies completely inadvertently, because the guidelines haven't been there, um, and it hasn't been clear what the law is quite saying or asking. The focus has been on accidents, loss of life. You know, quite rightly, there, there used to be way too many deaths and injuries at work from physical. And it's I, there's a lot of work to do there, I know. But certainly the statistics are showing that injuries and deaths from physical hazards at work are on the decrease, whereas stress-related, trauma-related, psychological harm at work is on the increase for a whole bunch of reasons. So that analogy sometimes helps a company just go, oh, wow, yeah, actually, we, we, there's a whole piece in the middle here. In terms of what that looks like, um, there are things that companies can do to reduce exposure at the source. Um, the BBC example is a difficult one because if users are given, here's the email address, send your footage in, somebody has to see it. But what they can do is sometimes break it down by topic. We find we have different tolerances for different topics. And we can find that um, another thing I found out in the BBC is sometimes people being able to specialize is another buffer. You know, I'm, I'm becoming a real subject matter expert in this type of horrible stuff, but I'm still becoming an expert in it. And that's linked to the agency part. And someone else who perhaps says, I, I really, really do get triggered by a certain type of stuff. And it would be better for me if I could avoid that. It can be moved around if that makes sense. I mean, the mechani mechanisms inside a company are very, very different. Um, in content moderation, very big challenge for the, all the reasons you said. If we're going to keep the users safe, then this stuff has to be um, grabbed hold of. Huge debates about artificial intelligence. I'm not going to claim that's my expertise. Where I come into contact with that is hearing about how sophisticated is it becoming? And then there are huge moral questions about it. Huge questions about how effective it is not to have the nuances of human mind who can think about policy. But it is one way in which stuff can get filtered. You can also just have um, different layers of moderation. So um, again, it's difficult because without discussing uh, confidential ways of working inside these companies but um, I'm certainly wanting to say as much as is useful that the removing at source but actually workflow patterns and it really links as Jason said earlier to some of the other known you know like the stress management around job control working relationships is that you can put a whole load of buffers in place that mean that when the content itself is coming in the environment that a person's in is is much safer for them if that makes sense so it's it's a little bit of a, not a sidestep as such, but it's trying to make sure that the things that are controllable are better controlled. And then the capacity to deal with the stuff that is part of the job will likely have less. And then there's the PPE, developing self-awareness just to say, I know I'm triggered in certain ways by certain things. And I won't always know when I'm going to see that one piece because often the way content moderating is done is it just all comes in. Um, but we can equip people much earlier on 
um, to spot those signs and rather than say, I'm going to wait until I think I need a counsellor, being able to process things themselves in ways that are meaningful for them. And that goes back to what I said about the individuals needing to be way more involved it, where at all possible for it to be meaningful, but where a manager or a department may be able to do a whole bunch of risk assessments for slips, trips, falls, you know, working from height and then let people know, you know, here's the risk assessment, here's the PPE, this is how you use it. It's much better to invite people into the process for psychological hazards and make it as meaningful as possible. I, I know you would know this stuff for the listeners, but uh, it can be more time intensive for sure. However, the, the gains from it have been shown to be fantastic in terms of um, we know that keeping people safe keeps them in work longer, being more productive. So. Mm. Is there sort of a role for, for debriefing and, and that sort of thing um, for these roles? I think that's a good question because I think it kind of depends what the risk management journey is and therefore um, what context in which would you bring a debriefer in um, if it's almost like what, what level of hazardous exposure is still left when you're managing it. So the short answer is yes, I think there's a role for it, um, but I think it's not something to throw in almost indiscriminately, like we, we know there's been exposure, let's throw in debriefing. I think it's part of a risk management approach, but has to be used carefully. Mm. Yeah, um, we talk a lot about the integrated model of workplace mental health on the platform, and you've been describing it quite well with your example of working at heights. You know, people understand the tertiary side, how we've got a trauma surgeon mm -hmm. on hand, uh, as in an EAP in the case of psychological risk. Um, we are doing the well-being related stuff, so fruit bowls, yoga, mindfulness, that sort of stuff. But the bit that seems to be missing a lot is the risk management piece, the protect, protect harm, uh, protect against harm. Um, so in social media, because I know it's different across different industries, but in social media, how well is that idea of risk management, psychosocial risk management understood and actually uh, instituted within those organisations? Hugely varied. Hugely yeah. varied because we've got the actual social media companies themselves who have numbers of internal moderators, but increasingly, in some ways it always was the case, but even more so is the... Um, the companies that are not household names that provide the workforces, the outsourced moderation companies globally. And of course, another thing that these companies have to do is they have to have people who not only speak the languages in all of their markets, you know, every country in which that any of those apps are used, there has to be the language, but it has to be the cultural nuances to understand what's offensive, what's not, what's legal, what's not. Um, so actually, yes, the policies are all written elsewhere by policy experts and the moderators are executing those policies, but the level of, in which they have to be immersed, they don't have to physically be in the country for whom they're moderating, but they have to, and they don't even necessarily have to come from the country, but the level that they need. So while we were saying on the one hand, it can be an entry level job, there's a lot to it that doesn't always get noticed. Because of the sheer number of companies now providing moderation on behalf of the household names we all know, uh, when I have, because I've worked, hence I haven't just worked with social media companies, I work with the, the companies that provide this service um, extensively across the world. Um, it's so variable as to almost there isn't, there isn't really an average left um, because some of them are hugely new to it. There are reasons they've never been exposed to these, even things like the management standards and understanding stress. There are others who are quite sophisticated. So I realise that's not a particularly concrete answer, but it's, it's what I'd say is across the industry is it's relatively new. But then I see it being quite new almost, even when I work with emergency services, they may have talked about trauma for a long time, but I have not met anyone much who's looked at 
an integrated risk management approach for psychological hazards anytime apart from about yesterday <laughs> <laughs> other than you know other than when i said i've, I've been working with someone like the bbc's had a psychological health and safety on the go since i think 2015 now i say that because they being a public company the bbc does advertise its strategies uh, externally and publicly so i can say a bit more about that yeah no it's um interesting i think you're giving our listeners and ourselves uh quite an insight into the world of social media and content moderation. In fact, I hadn't even crossed my mind that uh, companies would be outsourcing the content moderation to other houses, as you say. Um, and it's, it sounds very similar to what a lot of uh, big uh, producers do here and they outsource high risk roles. Yeah. I was just thinking the same thing that yeah. um, this is really a great case study for sort of the importance of thinking about psychological health and safety in your supply chain um, and you can't, obviously you can, but you shouldn't uh, be outsourcing your your psychosocial risk to other firms to manage on your behalf. So, um, you know, I guess what we see in um, heavy industry is, you know, client organisations will um, typically evaluate the safety management systems of their, their subcontractors to determine or to come to a conclusion whether that subcontractor is adequately equipped to manage the hazards that they're exposed to. So um, like, I guess without giving away any confidential (laughs) information, is this something, is this sort of issues of psychological health and safety considered in the supply chain for the, for the household names? It's sharp focus. It's absolutely for all those reasons, as we've said. And and actually, the, the bits I can mention, because it's in the public domain, um, we all know Facebook hasn't had a great reputation um, through some exposés, et cetera, you know, journalists getting information. If you look more, cl- and of course, Facebook's taken the hit on that. If you look more closely, that was almost entirely going on in outsourced company, in, in um, outsourced comp- subcontracted companies. Um, but quite rightly, Facebook was the one who had the moderating on their behalf so that out that is out there those articles are out there um some of what happened facebook did have a huge payout a lot has been learned um so yes it's a sharp focus yes reputationally same as in physical health and safety companies know their reputations are at stake but what i would say is a huge level of human care from those in leadership positions saying absolutely do not want to be harming the people who are doing this on our behalf but it just comes back to the balance of saying we don't want to harm our users and we don't want to harm our employees. And I think it's just dawning now on the industry how much work there is to do. Um, there was one other really quick thing to pick up there on the um, when you talked about the primary, secondary, tertiary. One thing I have been interested in a lot is the use of EAPs. It's kind of a big topic, but just to mention it, that it interests me because EAPs are fab. They usually are counselling and financial and legal. You know, it's a, it's a benefit package for employees. I'm interested in when it's used for um, more than it's there for in as much as, you know, somebody comes and says, look, I've just seen one more piece of animal abuse and I'm I'm now seeing it in my sleep and I'm having all sorts going on. And they say, go to EAP. Mm. And of course, EAP providers are not um, trauma-informed specialists. Some of the EAP providers I've worked with have tried to expand and depth, you know, deepen their provision. But um, I think referring employees to a benefit for workplace hazards can have some tricky considerations is how I would put it. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. Once uh, once that psychological injury has occurred, you need to be referring to your corporate um, doctors, your, your corporate healthcare, you know, your injury management 
um, rehabilitation, you, you know, you need to be engaging those processes, not your, not your EAP. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, as you say, it's, it's a great, it, it is a benefit always to be signposted towards because it's there and most companies have them and the counselling will be able to deal with something, you know, more than a lot more than nothing. Um, because I mean, I've worked with a lot of EAP counsel and they do a fantastic job, but mo- not many will have the trauma informed and trauma focused interventions they don't have to be clinical psychologists or psychiatrists, but some companies, part of the education is to recognise the differences around what, what employees are being offered. Yeah, and I mean, the other element of that also is the typically the number of ses- sessions you can have with the EAP is, is fairly limited. So, you know, probably five or six is really the top end of uh, the number of allocated services. And if you're dealing with somebody who's just experienced a significant traumatic incident at work um five sessions probably isn't going to cut it no and that's another exactly that that where there are these huge numbers of employees exposed to known foreseeable risks um that actually when you recognize the potential for individual occupational health referrals with trauma-informed services in order to pick up the pieces from what can occur with this exposure, you see really why when people feel that a risk-based approach is time intensive, resource intensive, difficult, you think, sure. <laughs> but yeah. actually, if you're gonna get the response right, keep your employees, have them in work, have them productive, not lose them, let alone all the reputational risks. Um, the investment isn't necessarily relatively as huge as it looks. So Absolutely, yeah, that's the not, not fully understanding what what the real consequences are are going to be if it's not managed. Yeah, we we do see that a bit where people are after quick wins and they're like, oh, there's a mindfulness app we could just purchase for everyone or um, we'll just get the EAP to like sweep up the pieces, Um, not looking at that risk management bit, which like you say, it's it's a cost. There's um, time and resources and strategy and policy and leadership commitment and all the rest that's required. But like you also say, they're... um, you know, even though there's not so many return on investment studies, like dollar for dollar uh, for risk psychosocial risk management yet, um, there's obviously other clear benefits in terms of protecting reputation, um, increasing productivity, um, retention of employees, that sort of thing. Yeah, and that, and I actually look more at the concept now, value on value of investment, where the kind of financial return, measurable financial return on investment, still in there. But it's capturing all of these others where sometimes if people say to me, what are the measurable outcomes? It's like, well, actually, it depends how you measure, but being legally compliant is a measurable outcome, like tick or not tick. And I I only say that advisedly where I know that country and regional laws vary. And when you have a global standard, that does at least give a common benchmark. So if a global company takes on a global standard, it doesn't have to matter so much, so long as the baseline of all the laws. And and again, I say that because I know one example there of that you talked about... um, Mindfulness apps, seen all of that, EAPs being a benefit, is what a very benefits-led well-being. Um, it's it can be quite that's a heavy US approach. It's not ex- exclusive to the US. But often when I've worked in US-led companies, there isn't much of a partnership with health and safety to look at the legal compliance, but also just the policies that say we can list these hazards, we can actually have them recognized. Um, and the benefits still make up part of the package. But we're not, I've seen some companies talk about what they call enhanced benefits. And what they mean by that is we've got people doing an exceptionally challenging role and we're honoring that. So we're just giving them more benefits. Mm. But it isn't, and it's a nice concept. We're enhancing the benefits they get to acknowledge the challenging role. We're valuing them, but it's not necessarily matched to what the need is. 
Yeah, at some point you actually have to address the demands and yeah, not just give them more resources. Yeah, the equivalent of, of danger pay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's not so different. You're right. And I know that the people who've been um, putting forward would, would not, you know, would be thinking, gosh, we didn't mean it to look that way. But some of that is because of the professional backgrounds that if HR are leading and not talking to health and safety, and there are just as many issues I've found if it's exclusively led by health and safety. So those those partnerships with the leadership, genuine leadership engagement, not just brilliant we're behind you go for it <laughs> but the actual investment is huge i love you jackie <laughs> <laughs> you've never listened to to our, our podcast before but you're um you're hitting all of the right notes and um bringing through a lot of themes that we we hear very very consistently from our guests about yeah the importance of collaboration between those different functions um to absolutely get it right and make sure that the right um, people are involved um and have yeah you know that the health and safety teams are doing their functions in terms of identifying hazards and assessing risks. And then they're drawing in HR to implement the right controls where that's necessary, um, injury management, all of those other functions. So it's about having oversight of the process and then pulling in the right, um, the right functions to deliver the the control measures and um, solutions. Yeah, that do play to those strengths, not only of the professionals involved and their training and their background, but also the resources. And, uh, and the communication. And it's why, to kind of go back, the, my PhD, although it seems a world away to be looking at um, hurricane risk, tornado risk, volcano risk, the whole point of my research was to be very applied and say, this is a multi-stakeholder issue. If we want communities and individuals to take heed of a flood risk warning or any warning and to keep themselves safe and make the right decisions and use the resources, it's not all on them to say, why aren't they, why aren't they acting on our science? Actually, the pandemic's brought it into, and I realise this is another whole topic, but the <laughs> pandemic has brought a lot of this into sharp focus because my doctorate was based very heavily on the health psychology of this whole, how do we get people to listen and say, well, it's a lot of the behaviour change stuff that this applies inside companies, is that the way you frame, the way stakeholders work together and understand each other is the first step before you can try to get a really good message out to the people and communicate it well and have an integrated package. And that step sometimes gets missed. The different departments are busy throwing what they feel is really valuable, whether it's the risk assessments and manuals for health and safety, whether it's the benefits packages from HR. Comms teams are often somewhere all, all the way over there. Um, so I do think, I think understanding inside the company who the really important stakeholders are, because there's definitely a role for everyone. We're not short of uh, enough work to do for everybody. Um, getting that really well integrated and then working at, you also mentioned though the art, the and I say it is an art many times, is of consultation across mm. the workforce. But it does have to be a highly collaborative effort. Um, and that was definitely found in other contexts I've been in, that that's what's the most successful. Now, Jackie, you have um, alluded to uh, when things aren't managed well, how it can be harmful for employees. Um, but what are some of the typical outcomes for um, people who are exposed to some of these psych hazards, particularly in the social media world? Yeah, good question. Um, and again, applies across, I know Joelle talked about helping professions. I'd actually say the number one thing that seems to, mm, I, I'll rewind a tiny bit because we're complex creatures and to try to say, well, it's usually vicarious trauma. Or it's usually, what would be described as burnout would be the most obvious kind of um, outcome. And what I mean by that is that when a person does reach the limit of absorption, of all of those hazards, whichever ones were the worst, 
Yes, there are individual you could call symptoms. I don't like to speak too medically often. It's it's looking at reactions, but it is just the whole hit a brick wall one day and say, I can't do this anymore. It could be physical exhaustion. It could be a physical illness. Yes, absolutely. Sometimes it is nightmares, flashbacks. It's um, what would be classically seen as trauma reactions mounting to whether it would get a diagnostic label of PTSD. It, to me, that matters and it doesn't. Um, but what we would understand to be trauma related reactions get all bundled in in what we would see as cumulative pressure, strain, exhaustion. Um, so I'd say in terms of companies, one of the hugest things would be uh, we go back, you know, whether companies keep tabs on sickness, absence, retention, um, exit interviews, all the places we can get measurable information from, get data from. But I, I'd say um, very high turnover is how a business often sees it. Um, sometimes on the far end of things, you do see lawsuits. We know that's happening in the social media world. Um, but I'd say what to me is a far bigger worry is the slightly less visible constant stream of just burnout and go, um, or things cropping up as physical illnesses, musculoskeletal problems, mm -hmm. um, either because the person doesn't recognize the source of their problems or because we still got too much stigma about saying, it's my mind that's suffering. But yep. I know I could say an awful lot about that, so I want to pause there. Uh, it could also be with what's claimable as well, whereas some um, obviously um, packages do not recognise psychological injuries, whereas they, it might be easier just to claim for a musculoskeletal dis disease or a respiratory disease. Mm. That's a very good point, actually, yeah. Um, the other thing I have seen, and that comes back to the individual a bit more, is there being a certain level of, uh, I want to try and word this carefully because desirability is not the right, if someone's not doing okay and there are a number of either labels they could be given or pathways they can be given, I've seen it be the case that someone would rather be told they have PTSD, for example, um, because they do a very high risk, difficult job, than be told you seem to have hit a point in life where everything's got, you, you've hit burnout, um, connected with shame or connected with stigma. So I've actually seen places in which some, some professionals will be almost actively seeking a trauma diagnosis because it feels a bit more like this happened to me, it's not my fault rather than I've allowed everything to get to build up to the point where I've burned out. I don't know if that makes sense, but I've seen that interesting one around how things come out. Mm. Mm. But I see your point about how also um, an employee might want to look at the outcomes and whether it's coming back to the company or going for a claim. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, that, that, that's an interesting point. And I guess that that's probably strongly linked to the history of PTSD um, and how it's, you know, come into the the public consciousness, um, you know, through war veterans and that sort of thing. So um, potentially there's just a better understanding of PTSD as opposed to burnout um, and maybe a greater acceptance that this is something that people experience, um, whereas still, I guess, um, for a lot of people, they'll hold a view that, oh, burnout, you, you know, you're just coming up with excuses for poor performance. Absolutely. And I think because PTSD in the in the DSM is one of the few where it's seen that there was a there was a traumatic event. Mm. Most of the others are you're broken. That's because of the way the system still is. It's not because that's necessarily how it is in the world. But yeah, I'd say what it actually shows is where we are with because it, it, quite rightly, I've done quite a lot of work with the military is that it used to be a huge stigma, shell shock. And um, the whole journey of PTSD in the military context was that it was the worst. But what's happened is there's so much good work being done. And we have in the UK help for heroes 
that the emergency services have really started to move forward on that of saying these people do this incredibly important wonderful job so sometimes they get traumatized and the stigma's really fallen away but in areas like military veterans a lot of people join the military quite young it could be it's the best option from a not a great start in life didn't necessarily do well in formal education that, that's a bit of a generalization but it, it can be true of later down the line someone's been held safe by an institution like the military part of a big family catered for medical dental fitness meals accommodation everything's done and when people leave after sometimes decades rather than years you can see the slightly almost seductive nature of saying I think I'd rather be told I've got PTSD from my actual active service than be told I'm just not coping Mm. with being back in the world but I realize that's kind of a whole other topic but it does tell us where we're up to with mental health stigma I think that some some reactions are now more acceptable or more honorable in some way than than other ways in which we can suffer interesting point you make around uh, PTSD being more socially acceptable because it's been seen as not as an individual weakness, but it's because of exposure to something that was outside of their control. Do you think um, the change to the definition of burnout in the new ICD-11, where it's specifically an occupational phenomenon um, because of exposure, you know, to workplace factors, um, do you think that will maybe help in people recognising burnout and us being able to do more to prevent burnout in the future? On the one hand, yes, I do want to see more emphasis on the um, possibility of psychological injury, psychological harm occurring from hazards that come at us. And yet, at the same time, I don't want us to lose the individual because the choices I make at work will also contribute my boundaries that I have, my self-knowledge, the ways in which I manage myself and recognize what triggers me, what doesn't, how can I process things? So, yes, absolutely, there needs to be I don't, I don't know whether the, the pendulum has to swing that far for us to come back to the middle, if that makes any sense, to say, so far it's all been that I broke on the inside, must be down to me, my history, whatever. I think we can swing too far to saying it's absolutely not the individual, almost remove that agency. And it can be a little bit seductive to feel like, oh, it wasn't my fault. Someone else can fix me. Someone else can manage this. Someone else can do the risk assessments. But I'd really like us to stay somewhere down the middle. Where, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. I actually, yes, well, actually I started more in the risk management space and then I moved into the resilience and kind of positive psychology area. And then I've kind of swung back hard into the the risk management space again. Uh, but ideally what we talk about is that shared responsibility for workplace mental yeah. health. You know, um, someone, uh, I got into a bit of a discussion last night on LinkedIn, actually, I'm not sure if Joel saw it. Uh, he's very much advocating for a biopsychosocial risk assessment, which takes into account in more individual characteristics to understand their risk if they are exposed to psych hazards at work uh, versus purely just assessing the psych hazards. I said it's probably a bridge way too far for employees to cross given that they're not managing the things that are co- completely in their control at the moment. Um, but, you know, we I don't think employees need to look at the biological if the individual can be um, educated on, you know, what to look out for in terms of their own individual risk factors and how they can keep themselves safe. That's where I would sit. I would uh, that exactly how I approach it. There's two things there. One, I talk about the psychological contract. Sometimes that's a bit like a bit intangible, but I always describe what I mean by that. And, and actually, health and safety law helps us with that. All the posters in the UK certainly say, what does your employer have to do for you? What do you have to do for your employer? And it is quite clear that it's a relationship that you've got to name hazards. And that goes with psychosocial. I've taught that, you know, content moderators and said part of the consultation is to say, if you feel there's an influx 
that you all talk to each other. If you're feeling like there's an influx of a certain kind of material in a certain country, it can happen when the Israel-Palestine things were happening. Like there was a big surge in what was being seen. Flag it as a health and safety issue. Don't just feel you go off to an EAP confidentially. Do that too if it helps. But actually, this is a workplace responsibility. So don't just wait for somebody to come and say, oh, yeah, we've risk assessed this for you because you might know there are reasons why, we, again, with people's histories. So I, exactly as you've just said, I find that if a company can have a look at how far they can go to risk assess on behalf of the workforce, in, whether it's by team, by location, but we see how uh, training managers, I believe, and educating managers to see where their role starts and ends, I find... I more often have to help managers pull back and have boundaries than I do to ask them to help, um, but it is a mix. But I think if you don't invite the employees into the process by way of some kind of education that says, you're gonna interact with these hazards in a way that is broadly unique to you, you'll find others who are similar to you, but you, again, you know all of this. Um, that, that's what works the best. But I think where I work with organizations, I advocate the employee journey being vital. And what I mean by that is that this, that psychological contract is established ideally pre-hire. So one place I've been where you would often have a diversity and inclusion statement on the job descriptions, I added a well-being one, that have pretty much said something along the lines of, this company is committed to your well-being throughout the employee journey, and in, we work blah, 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 in partnership with our employees. So it's, there's a statement there that might not mean much in its own right, but then you can have talent acquisition teams on board with it. The onboarding training can talk explicitly about uh, not just the usual health and safety modules, but actually bring this in. So I think when it's done that way, employees have a really clear idea. And that's a bit utopian and most companies have got more work to do on that. But I do think the employee journey is vital so that employees are genuinely empowered. The two words I use the most actually are empowered and equipped because empowered is almost more psychological. It's um, feeling the agency and then equipped as having the actual tools mm. that are appropriate to the hazards. They aren't just the generic ones we've talked about, like try and be more resilient. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And um, as you say, you know, incorporating that into a commitment to employees through, you know, the employment contract through uh, OHS policy, that sort of thing saying, you know, we see this as a shared responsibility. This is what we're going to do and what we expect you to do in return. So, yeah, I think that's. Yeah. Really, and, we're, that's and, really- and consultation. Sorry, came in over there. I do apologize. No, no, no. Consultation, yeah, is uh, so important. The consultation piece. It's the bit that we see companies skimp on the most, but is the most effective part in understanding and mitigating risk. So, yeah. Um, So this next question I have for you, um, sort of front of my mind says this is a stupid question with an obvious answer. Um, But then the more that I think about it, the more I think there's a lot of nuance there. So I'm going to ask it anyway. I'm thinking about, you know, the, the users of, of social media are, are essentially content creators um, and they're the ones who are actually subjecting the content moderators to these hazards. Is there a role for improving public awareness in this area? So for, I generally don't think there are stupid questions very often, sometimes, sure, but not very often. Uh, I do not think that's, and I don't think there are obvious answers. No, I think it's a brilliant question because if you think back to what we were talking about, there is quite rightly an enormous emphasis on user wellbeing, that the end users are the recipients of horrible stuff, that if we don't keep the platform safe, then they're going to see this awful stuff. There isn't a lot of conversation around the fact that these are content generators themselves. And of course, 
the vast majority of users probably put fun, genuinely great content on there. But when people sometimes talk about social media platforms in themselves being um, sort of dark or different, you think, no, they're just another platform for humanity in all of its diversity. And yes, it can be highly concentrated and, and we, we know all of that. But the short answer is, yes, I think there's a huge um, need for more public awareness, for more awareness, um, both of the fact that content moderation has a human face this workforce across the world um, who do work under incredibly high pressure with to try to keep the darker side of the internet away from the users as one. And I think that has come forward a bit, bit more in the last couple of years because there have been a couple of lawsuits. Um, but I wouldn't imagine that's hit, reached everybody. Um, but I think that the, the, the second part there about responsibility of users towards the content they're creating and uploading um, is something that probably hasn't been dealt with a huge amount. I do know social media companies working very closely with big universities, for example, on user interface, but it is generally more on the well-being side. Yeah, I think that's uh, there's not an easy answer to that. But now um, I have seen some people on LinkedIn had their accounts cancelled for putting inappropriate content up. And at the time you feel bad for them because they may have accumulated you know tens of thousands of followers and you think of all the work they did but then when you think about the potential harm that they're actually putting content moderators under you're like oh maybe they had it yeah coming. because or i maybe, suppose maybe that would be a little bit yeah to me i don't know if this is the best analogy really but i think you'll see what i'm coming because i'm thinking on yeah. my feet but it, it's it's in a way that this whole idea of keyboard warriors or of, of, it's a little it reminds a little bit of road rage that if you're in a metal box on wheels you're not quite as mm. close to the person that you might be being quite aggressive towards or inconsiderate of at best. And I think this is amplified. That one to me is a bit like someone who has a brilliant reputation in, in life and in professionally and personally, a wonderful all round person. And then they have too much to drink one night and punch somebody. Does it mean they don't get whatever the sentence is for that assault? Uh, no. So uh, possibly not the best analogy, but I think you know what I mean, that yeah. we do, I think we do need to be very, very careful what we choose to put and not just think, oh, it's just how I felt at the time. I'll just go ahead and put it up. Um, I think more consideration and deliberation. Yeah, yeah. But I do know, going back to what we said before, the combination of AI and moderators who are not, moderators are not there to have an opinion. Mm. They are only there to implement policy and policies are updated and changed. The, 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 the rate with which content moderators are sent new policies across all the possible topics is incredible, it's dizzying. I don't know how they do it. And their role is to assess a piece of content and say it violates policy or it doesn't, not, I think that's horrible. Yeah. And this can cause, of course, difficulties as well um, for the companies, but also that users can either feel unjustly penalized or can feel that people are not being penalized. And it is really, really difficult, but I know it's something that's being worked on furiously all the time. Yeah. Mm, uh, yeah. I, um, I remember recently, not on LinkedIn, um, posting a, a comment um, in response to something that a friend had said, and I used rather a rude word um, in my comment. And um, that's unlike you, Joel. I know, <laughs> very, very out of character for me. Um, and so this is, I guess, where the AI comes into it because it popped up with a little thing saying, "You may be in violation of our community standards. Are you sure you want to post this?" Um, and I said yes because I, I used it in a, in a humorous way, not in a not in a um, a name calling way. Yeah, it's like that's that. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. So AI, the what was the article that you shared over Teams um, at the paleontologist? Oh, the, yeah, <laughs> the the um the what obscenity filter had um il- eliminated the use of the word bone in a paleontology conference, um, which <laughs> had a lot of problems for people. <laughs> so AI, as you say, still has its limitations, unfortunately. It does, and the, co- the context. Things like the subtleties and nuances of humour, or even words embedded in words. There's one I saw only yesterday, Facebook, is that we've got a town actually very near where I live called Scunthorpe. And embedded in there is a four-letter word. <laughs> yeah. And it picked that up. It picked that up and said, You're you're using a really highly offensive word. It was like it's actually the name of a town. <laughs> yeah, it's like, that that it's may like, that co- may have been the word that I used. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's like it's but like co- it's like Coburn. It is not spelled that way. That's true. Coburn which... is not spelt like it sounds. Oh, I know, I know, no. yes, I mean. <laughs> Yeah. And actually, um, to that point, Joel, that I know that that's one of the things. Try to I suppose that answers a little bit of your question. Is there's definitely work because it's not my field, and I don't want to try and speak for those who work really hard on this um you know whole divisions on the sort of trust and safety of users but is trying to give users that agency that says are you sure <laughs> rather than immediately blocking or reporting or or removing something that it hands yeah. it back a little bit to say we spotted something and we're going to give you a so ai can do that ai can give the chance back but often it's a human moderator that then has to look at the more nuanced yeah and i guess you've got sort of different intent for for different users as well and you've got a group of users who whose intent is to um cause disruption and and disturbance and you know sort of the the trolls i guess who are deliberately um going about trying to yeah create mayhem. yeah so they're not going to care about yeah, that. So they're not sure. going to care about that they're <laughs> going to be happy that they're getting those kinds of um yeah. uh, of suggestions yeah. um but yeah then you've got i guess the hopefully the broader um the the yeah the larger group of users who don't actually want to um do things that are going to cause genuine distress to other people and yeah. yeah and that's why there are different ways like you know ai picks up stuff and flags it but users report um but there again you've got something the other way around where you get users who are um feeling malicious towards an account mm-hmm. holder yeah. Yeah. Me, who report me for nothing um, but it still puts my content into the system, suspends everything and has it all um, looked at if it gets reported. So, yeah, it's I mean, humans are messy, so it's going to it's going to keep being messy. But um, sure, there's a, there's certainly what I would say to anyone listening is the amount of work going into this is vast. But I think there is an absolute acknowledgement that this is huge, that social media platforms have burst forth with such energy. And I know, again, it's in the public sphere because I've heard it said that the um, in the early days of Facebook, there was a genuine naivety around this is just a fun platform for people to refine each other and reconnect and how bad could it possibly be move fast and break things right like, yeah yeah absolutely that's now just it's just move fast now yeah. um but um and then even more recently some of these um newer apps around you know yeah but if it's music and dance then how bad can that be you know and it's it's that catching up of saying sadly sadly there will be these minorities forevermore who who will have their it's a whole another area of psychology isn't it who will seek to do harm in different ways so it's going to be a constant kind of game of catch up on that side but i appreciate that that, yeah we could spiral away onto the user side but but the health and safety on the inside is going to continue to be in almost in competition with all the other things we've just talked about you know how do platforms stay within the right laws 
answerable to populations we serve, keep users safe, hold users to account, keep identity safe, but get the right amount of data to keep children safe. Don't let a number of young users who can get into accounts that are for higher age than they are. And everyone who's a parent knows this. So it's a very complicated area. Well, Jackie, it has been a fascinating discussion to say the least uh, with you today. Um, uh, we are conscious we do want you to get on with your Wednesday. Uh, over there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what would you say are your hopes for the future of workplace mental health? Summarising what we've covered, I would like to see um, two, two main things that I think hopefully gather things up enough, which, which would be keeping moving towards the, the foreseeable stuff being dealt with as foreseeable, where it can be, taking a risk management approach that, um, that really does acknowledge that harm can be done by work, by work itself, by workplaces, sometimes by the people in the workplaces, but harm can be done at work. And that actually that does need to be a multi-stakeholder business um, for all of its complicatedness, complexity, which links to, um, I also want to keep seeing it be um, as participatory and collaborative as it can, because I know that's what works. And I know you said the same, and I appreciate the challenges involved. And it links to what I said about the pendulum swing, that even more broadly in mental health, I think it's 100% right that we have been seeking parity with mental health difficulties. We all have health, we all have mental health, we can all have mental health problems with or without a, a diagnostic label of any kind. Um, However, workplaces cannot be um, cannot be parents, cannot be healthcare services. Workplaces need the workforce to be able to be in relationship. So, um, in terms of everyone having a duty of the to term, it's quite health and safety. But everyone's duty of care is clear, mm. but that everybody has one, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, I, I think those two things go together, really. Yeah, uh, I think you've just summed up our podcast. We can probably like. Yeah, that's it. We're done. We're done. That's yep. it. Like dust off your hands. Drop, Bye, listeners. It's been fun. Um, <laughs> Jackie, um, do you have some words of advice for people who are listening and think that they'd like to work in the space of psychological health and safety? Now, there's another really good question. Um, yeah. Well, firstly, I'd say not to get hung up on the, so how to say this right. I'm not saying that those of us who work in this field don't need credentials and training and expertise and, and, and to gather experience. However, pathways, I am not a classic pathway. I didn't get trained in health and safety. I didn't get trained as a clinician. I've come through an applied research background where I've taken what I've learned and moved it around, made connections. And I think that's been a huge value because I think I've sometimes bridged, bridged between professions where maybe say clinical psychology have been coming really in one way and maybe health and safety have been coming in another. Um, so my experience has been that coming with a diversity of problem solving skills, but with an absolute willingness to learn and, and, and gather that expertise, um, not to get hung up on like, oh, I'm going to have to start right from scratch in training in years and years worth of a certain type of, you know, psychology. So the advice would be, yeah, is, is get learning, but don't um, box yourself in. Does that, if you think that's, I mean, I'm interested in what you think about that as well, from, from what I've said. Yeah, we've. Um, uh, yeah, I think we. You know, we talk often about the um, the collaboration between different functions that ne that's necessary for good psychological health and safety. 
Um, and I think that that necessarily means that there are many, many different professional pathways into this particular field. And, you know, to, to do it well in an organisation requires people with lots of different backgrounds and lots of different experience in that range of functions. So I think that, you know, if this is an area that you want to work in, you find a way to use your use your strengths and your your existing competencies and you apply it to this particular subject matter and you work with other people who are subject matter experts, but you've got tools to leverage their expertise in in whatever um, your your discipline or your field is. Yeah, talking to you, I, Matt, I think, Matt yeah. um, and Gareth and Sheila, all those people who have said that they need to be an organisational psychologist to work in the field. Yeah, just because we're organisational psychologists doesn't mean that that's the only well, choice. Well, you're an organisational psychologist. That's true. That's true. Jason, yeah. you're not an organisational psychologist. No, but I think you said it much better than I did because that you just said what I was meaning to say, thank you, which is professional pathway, yes. Exactly which one needs all sorts because what I have encountered in workplaces certainly under the umbrella of the term well-being has been one of my slight pet peeves if you know that term is um, genuinely passionate genuinely enthusiastic people who can end up saying well yeah I'm a I'm a I don't know it could be someone in a highly technical profession but I care deeply about human well-being so why can't I do this for a living how hard can it be isn't it just obvious uh, so I kind of guard against that to say there has to be a professional pathway but I think you summarised it really nicely there, Joelle, that the, the number of pathways in are far broader and more diverse than a lot of people might initially think. And I do think this has been occupational psychology is the title over here. And, and organisational has almost been seen as you have to have come through that route um, when actually I'm seeing so many different professions coming in. And I, and I think leveraging both your skills and your everything you've gathered up so far the fact that I've been able to take a six-year academic career in natural hazards and climate change risk psychology um and yes I've had to learn furiously inside companies all the things I didn't already know um but I haven't had to go and retrain as an occupational or organizational psychologist to be credible yeah mm. that's great advice because it has been coming up quite a bit lately it's been yeah um, Jackie, I don't say this to all of our, our guests. This has been one of my favourite conversations, I think, ever on the podcast. Um, not diminishing the input from any other guests because we've had some fantastic yeah, just, guests on the show. slapping all the rest of the guests in the face. Uh, we've had amazing <laughs> but, um, yeah. This has been a really unique topic, I think, yep. and something that um, neither of us have really done any work in. So I guess um, it's just super interesting. And maybe me being us. a startup founder myself. And, yeah, uh, well, we're, we're a tech company yeah. as well, so it's it's relevant, I guess, yeah. Yeah, uh, but really, really interesting. Um, where can our listeners find out more about your work, Jackie? Because you're consulting now, yeah. I am recently back to it. I Right now, LinkedIn is my main go-to. Uh, I am working on all sorts else, but that will be on LinkedIn as soon as it's ready. Um, but I would also just like to say that I have had a delightful time talking to you two as well. I feel like I've got a huge amount. I have been following your work in my own way. I was saying earlier, I don't so much listen to podcasts, but I'm going to be looking up the transcripts because I'm an avid reader. Oh, there's not um, and hearing more. Around, just sorry to let you down. <laughs> <laughs> there's only one or two with transcripts. That, there's only one or two with transcripts. I've got to outsource more. Oh, no worries. Yeah. I will catch those up. But I've been keeping a close eye on your other guests and I know some of them. But I do, you know, it sounds like I've got a huge amount I could be learning from you two as well. So it's been a real joy and it's got my head whirring in lots of good ways, given that it's the early part of my day still. <laughs> Set me up well, thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. We'll have to get you on at some point again in the future and we can talk about um, 
trauma and uh, what is it? Uh, like natural disasters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> have, have another topic. <laughs> oh, I can definitely talk about those for a while. <laughs> All right. Um, well, that brings us to the end of the episode, listeners. So don't forget, you can watch the video if you'd like over YouTube rather than just listening to it as a podcast. Unfortunately, we don't have transcripts uh, of these episodes. We might do this one just as a special one, just for Jackie. Um, just <laughs> Sorry, she doesn't need to read the transcript for this one. She was in it. Ever, she loved it so much. She wants to read it back. <laughs> Um, and uh, yeah, if you want to watch the short clips as Jackie likes watching on LinkedIn, that will be on the Flourish DX LinkedIn page. Uh, whilst you're over there connecting with Jackie, following her or connecting with her, uh, you can also connect with Joel and myself on LinkedIn and, uh, you know, keep the conversation going online. But that's it for today, listeners. We'll catch you next episode. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention, follow Flourish DX on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast at www.psychhealthandsafety.com.